Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield. This is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. With me today, as always, Eric Whitehead, our engineer who uh, turns dials. And across, uh, sitting definitely across, is Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. And joining us today is George Friedman, who is the uh, the principal of something called Geopolitical Futures, a subscription service that sees into the future and tells you about it before it comes to pass. Now, we at Grant's actually have trouble sometimes figuring out what happened in the past, but here comes George Friedman tells what's going to happen, which is a very new thing around this office. So, George, welcome. Uh, before, however, we get any further, it falls to me to uh, mention the names of the companies without whom or which this podcast would be not a profit maker. And they are ZipRecruiter, which shows you how to hire people, and everybody's hiring these days. And uh, SendPro is likewise a sponsor. So thank you, SendPro. Thank you, ZipRecruiter. And George Friedman, welcome. Good to be here. George, we have been reading your geopolitical futures with great interest and with gratitude. Thank you for sending us a few sample issues. Tell us, if you would please, some of your thoughts on what is turning out to be a most emergent and topical topic, namely Germany and its most peculiar banking system. Well, Germany is, from our point of view, far more than Italy, the danger point in Europe. It exports 50% of its GDP. 5% drop in exports is 2.5% drop in GDP. Its largest customer right now is the United States. The United States is now, or shortly in the future, going to go into a recession, normal one. And Germany is extremely vulnerable in terms of its dependency on exports. Uh, in addition to that, its banking system is behaving very oddly. It's hard to understand exactly how a booming economy can have such a banking system. And it reminds me of Japan in 1988-89. Banking system was going south, and Japan was surging exports, trying to hold everything together. And Germany is starting to look like that a lot. What exactly is odd about the banking system? Is it just Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, or are you seeing problems in the Landesbank? And can you tell us what exactly is wrong there in the financial system? Well, Normally, the commercial banks uh, that finance exports, that finance uh, in the industry, should be doing quite well given the numbers the Germans are putting out on their economy. They should not be in trouble. Obviously, these banks have acted in odd ways, perhaps making irresponsible investments. But normally, as in Japan, you saw a situation where the economy appeared to be doing extremely well, and the city banks, as they were called then, were falling apart. And when you see this juncture between the banking system and the economy, you have to start wondering, especially when it's the very large banks, especially Deutsche Bank, is not just any other bank, it's it's the bank, and it's been staggering for a while, and now it's going into another stagger. Yeah, for a long time. What uh, Deutsche Bank sells at uh, like, uh, I don't know, like 35 or 40% of book value, maybe less? Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, so 60% of book value in the market's considered judgment is worthless, which is a familiar fact, actually. That's nothing in the way of news, but certainly it is something to keep in the front of one's mind with respect to Germany. Again, going back to the Japanese example, the problems of the Japanese banks were being brushed off over and over again. I mean, they were just old news. They, but clearly well, Japanese banks, if you recall, were selling at some of the, the memory service, which it's ever less frequently does, but uh, Japanese banks at the time, I think, were selling at five and six and eight times book value. It was an extraordinary bubble that certainly encompassed the financial system as well as the industrial stocks. Well, and from a geopolitical point of view, when we see those kinds of disjunctures within the nation state, and then we see very aggressive behavior on the part of Germany trying to hold Britain inside of the EU by hook or by crook. When you start seeing those kinds of odd political behaviors, you really start to wonder what the underlying instability is. 
And from our point of view, it's you know a very simple thing. Fourth largest economy in the world is living off of 50% GDP on exports. Is the problem uh, in Germany's financial system low rates, or is it something specific endemic in Germany? And the reason I ask is I remember this paper the Bundesbank put out four or five years ago when the uh, 10-year boon yielded, I think, a percent and a half. And it said that if rates stayed at where they were, in like a decade, half of Germans' insurers would be out of business. Now, Germany's 10-year boon yields basically zero plus or minus 20 basis points on any given day. And I can't imagine it's any better for the financial system. Is it something specifically wrong in how Germany's economy or finance system is run? Or is it just kind of negative rates kind of taking their toll on businesses that live off of spreads? It's a profound problem. Germany depends on its customers to keep it afloat. If its customers for its exports run into trouble, Germany runs into trouble. This is very similar to China after 2008. China was a wonderful exporter until its customers couldn't or wouldn't buy, and then it started staggering. Well, we've seen many of these export giants stagger. Now we're waiting for the last shoe to drop Germany. And I think a lot of people inside of Germany are starting to discount that. They know how vulnerable they are. When you talk to them, they are aware they're a high wire act and they don't know how to get off. George, what does this imply for the uh, exchange rate of the the euro and dollar? Uh, If if the euro were to appreciate and put in Germany and its exports under further trouble, under pressure, what would happen with the European Central Bank? What's going to happen with these foreign currencies? Well, I mean, you have a a double problem. I mean, you have really a flat Europe. It needs a cheaper currency in some ways in order to export more efficiently. And it's very hard for them to do that. I mean, the problem is that Germany has a unique problem in the Eurozone. Other countries have a problem that they export too much to Germany. And the whole thing is leveraged in such a way that once it starts coming apart, it stays apart. So Germany should want lower currency rates, but is how do you build a coalition? Which reminds me, I don't know about you, Evan, or you, George, it reminds me of Pitney Bowes and its fabulous SendPro. If you are like us at Grants, you occasionally have packages to send. So don't waste any more time waiting in line to send packages and mail. Just avoid that confusion by finding the best postal rates for your business. With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can send packages and mail without leaving your office right from your desk for as low as $4.99 a month. And for being a Grants listener, thank you, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started. As an added bonus, you'll also receive a free 10-pound scale shipped right to your door uh, to help you accurately weigh your packages. So save time and money no matter what you send from packages to overnights and letters. Just click send and save with this new offer for SendPro Online. Starting at the aforementioned $4.99 a month, you can print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer, easily compare rates using our online software, gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping. By the way, USPS is copyrighted, so uh, don't let the Postal Service find out that you're taking that name lightly or in vain. Plus, Track all of your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived. Go to pb.com slash grantspod to access this special offer and get a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash grantspod. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of SendPro online from Pitney Bowes. Evan saw something this morning, George, that uh, I think is indicative of uh, a style of lending and borrowing that um, was certainly in some ways was characteristic of Japan in the bad old days. But uh, Evan, tell us about what may or may not be a new thing or perhaps just a new label. And that is the, uh, was it the red impetus loans? It's not new in one sense in that China's really good at making 
bad loans and lending to people who don't want to pay back. Especially. Especially good. But what seemed new to me is um, banks are now rewarding people and companies who actively promote Xi Jinping's thought. So if you're a good red cadre, you push all your workers to join the Communist Party, you can get an uncollateralized loan at a cheaper rate. And it's no guarantee required, right? No guarantee required. Hey, um, would this work internationally, for example? I'm just, this is just hypothetical. If you and I were to uh, propound the thoughts of Xi Jinping, you know, just uh, on the podcast, I'm writing nothing down, just, just saying them. Could we just you know, get a half million or something? I, I think we could add a third sponsor into today's uh, episode. George, what do you think? Yeah, especially if you would say uh, the East is red. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the Chinese have been doing this for ever since Deng Xiaoping. It was not a market economy for credit to a great extent. It was a political economy. Members of the Central Committee owned a great many enterprises. They were given loans at low rates. And this is haunting the Chinese financial system. For one thing, because they're really not booked, but it's there. And, you know, when you talk about the shadow economy, banking system, well, part of it we understand, you know, it's just unregulated banks. But Part of it is government lending to corporations that had no business to exist. And they're doing this now in particular because Xi is afraid. Xi is under tremendous pressure in terms of he's not solved the economic problems. He's been forced into negotiations with the United States that he didn't want to be in. His job was to manage the United States. He failed. So... You know, Xi is very busy bribing people to support him. You know, this reminds me uh, a little bit of uh, the politicization of credit the worldwide. I mean, uh, we've talked about Germany. Uh, certainly the European banks are chock-a-block full of sovereign debt. And uh, in this country, I mean, don't we have something called, uh, I think, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? The, the, I, I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah. So it's not exactly the same, but certainly it rhymes. Um, George, you are the author, uh, and don't deny this because it's a very popular book, of the next 100 years. That came out uh, 10 years ago. So we're 90 years into the next 100 years. But I would like you, uh, as a final gift to our listeners, to tell us what signal event, just pick one, that they may expect in the next 90 years. And you're, to judge by your picture, you may well be around you know, a young-looking fellow, and so you have to take responsibility of this. But 90 years out, what might we expect? One thing. 90 years out, what we expect is, one, that North America is the center of gravity of the international system. We're already uh, collectively a larger GDP, uh, larger population than Europe, the EU. Uh, and that there will be two major powers in North America. One is the United States, and the other is Mexico. Uh, Mexico is already, by PPP, the 11th largest economy in the world. Northern Mexico is an extraordinary place if you go down and take a look at Airbus building and Bombardier building there. Uh, this is a country that's reemerging and has got a grudge against us. We stole northern Mexico fair and square. So I think just as Europe, when it was the center of gravity of the world, put a lot of internal conflicts, so North America, and 90 years out, means Mexico and the United States. All right. Um, so uh, what's that stock we liked in Mexico? Oh, uh, Fibra Uno? Yeah. All right. It sounds like it might be worth looking at again. Yeah, it's an all-around kind of a commercial real estate play, uh, residential, uh, office, and um, and uh, retail. Yeah, I saw the manager. I was very impressed with him. So, uh, George, thank you for bringing that uh, thought to the fore. We're going to take a look at that uh, at least um, the stock we used to like. See, I'm sure it has not done so well under these difficulties. But if we're, if we're looking at a 90-year investment horizon, we are certainly going to revisit. So George Friedman, founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, thank you. Great having you. Thanks for having me. And by the way, real estate development, uh, single-family homes, is absolutely booming in northern Mexico. That really is something to look at because northern Mexico now has a standard of living equal to that of southern Italy. And it's rising. Oh, 
So there are a lot of different Mexicos, and northern Mexico is amazing. That's good to know, too. Thank you, George. Good to talk to you. That was interesting talking to George Friedman. You know, I, Evan, I was, I was looking at the papers this morning, and I saw a headline in the Financial Times of London that seems so typical of the present day and its uh, speculative sentiment. And the headline is the following. Long only hits the spot for hedge funds. Long only hedge funds. Evan, what does the word hedge mean? I think it means an honorarium where you can charge two and 20. <laughs> kind of like PhD. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, um, hedge funds are now unhedged. And that's, uh, it is the um, first paragraph of the story reads in its entirety. Buying stocks and hoping they gain in price was once considered the poor cousin of hedge fund investing. But as the industry looks to recover from its first annual drop in assets since the financial crisis, fund managers are being forced to think again. They weren't thinking before? <laughs> this is a really difficult time for people who uh, who study headlines and uh, and magazine covers for, for cyclical you know, turning points. Uh, just two days ago from over a quarter, Recording, uh, Larry Fink, the CEO and founder of BlackRock, came in and said the markets are at risk of a melt-up, not a meltdown. And th those two kind of headlines would kind of make one suspect that the market might go down. I mean, it, it tends to disappoint people who, um, who have the hubris to say such things. But the flip side, Bank of America Merrill Lynch does a global fund manager survey. And uh, this week, it came out and said that two-thirds of um, managers are bearish on both growth and inflation outlook for the global economy over the next 12 months, and that this is the highest level expecting secular stagnation since October 2016. If you remember, the start of 2016 really was kind of scary. People thought the world was going to fall into another recession. And it turned out that, you know, through tax cuts in the U.S., through stimulus from China, 2017 was pretty good and 2018 was a, was a bit better. So you're seeing signs on both sides right now of um, of things could be bad or things could be good. Yeah. Well, things are pretty fine at ZipRecruiter, I'll tell you that much. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go when hiring is simple, fast and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address at ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter.com slash G-R-A-N-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, uh, the late Paul McCray Montgomery, a great friend of Grant's and of mine, and uh, he was a, a technician who worked at Leg Mason Wood Walker. He, he was uh, made his home in Newport News, Virginia. And Paul McCray Montgomery was the originator of the uh, Time Magazine cover indicator. And uh, he uh, connected inflection points in markets with um, the covers that were unequivocally assertive with respect to things that no one could really know, like the future. I mean, George Friedman knows the future, but we don't know. So Paul developed this, and he gave it some thought. He said, you know, these cover indicators work, but really only when the magazine in question is a general circulation one. So by the time a, a financial theme comes to the attention and commands the attention of a general circulation publication, like in the day there was Life and Look and, and uh, Time and Newsweek, uh, then it is a contrary indicator. You put much less stock in uh, the covers and the assertions of financially themed publications like the FT, which in 1997 said gold was dead. That was not a cover, but it was a, uh, towards the, it was a full page uh, spread commanding attention. And uh, Evan, was there a Business Week cover that uh, caught your eye today? Yeah, I think it had something to do with inflation. Or... Well, what did it say? 
It said inflation's dead. No, what did it say? I, I forget the exact wording. No, it said, it said inflation's dead. Yeah, it also had a, a dinosaur on the ground. Def, uh, Looking no, not very good, yeah. And if you went onto its online website, they had uh, the dinosaur was like a blow-up dinosaur, and the video would show uh, slowly show the dinosaur deflating as the air left its body. Yeah, ew. <laughs> But um, the, the trouble with some of these uh, indicators that I think our friend, the late Paul Montgomery, would, as he would call to our attention, is that uh, uh, the timing is, is very, very uncertain. For example, the uh, the gold story, the big gold story in the FT in 1997, that was like uh, three, two and a half years before um, gold, in fact, made a substantial bottom. And there was a business week, an infamous business week cover story, the death of equities. Death of Equities. That was 1978. And I was at the staff of Barron's at the time. And I remember the magazine arriving in the office and Bob Blyberg and Alan Abelson just hooting and hollering and just couldn't believe the the, the innocence and indeed the, the, the hubris and the outright folly of putting this on a cover of a publication. And um, wouldn't you know it, Business Week turned out not to be wrong in 1978, 79, 80. 81. <laughs> it got to be wrong in 1982, and it stayed wrong from 1982 sensibly until about uh, 15 minutes ago. Well, it seems like they're being wrong for uh, shorter periods of time. That was like four or five years in 78. It was uh, two and a half in uh, 1997. I remember The Economist, which has, a, I think, a subscription base of around a million people in 2016, had an article about or a cover saying, Brazil, ready to take off. If I remember shortly thereafter, Brazil sank into a recession, and it never really got back to the vim of uh, you know, the, the pre-recession growth. Yeah. Well, you know, what, you know what is so comforting about this, about this exercise in schadenfreude that we're having, this in journalistic project, is that we know when we point out the foibles, these other publications, we speak from a position of authority. And that position of authority is that it grants we don't make mistakes. <laughs> Let the record show that Evan Lorenz emitted a low laugh of knowledge, indeed a kind of a cackle. We're sometimes early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've also worn our share of cream pies, but um, I guess not, the word is not, but we have worn our share of cream pies, period. Well, we, we do take one clever strategy. Instead of doing an um, overarching cover, we just do a cartoon on the front. <laughs> Yeah. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that's that's kind of, I don't know, I've kind of run out of things to assert. But the cover, now that you mention it, Devin, by the way, the newspaper world, newspaper trade, the cover is called The Wood. I love that phrase. That's the wood. The front page is The Wood. And, you know, we don't give away the content of Grant's interest rate observer, just anybody. But we, I'm, I'm prepared to share with the listeners to this podcast, I'm prepared to share the cartoon. You mentioned the cartoons. We have a cartoon every two weeks, and I'm prepared to share the cartoon this week. Ready? Okay. Uh, the scene is um, a well-furnished uh, interior room of a, of a substantial apartment uh, inhabited by uh, a substantial family. And uh, the scene is uh, a kid, maybe uh, a... a I told Hank Blaustein, our artist, back when 15 years old, I think Hank made him 14, but he's dressed as 14-year-olds do dress. Eric Whitehead to my left has a pair of sons. I think you might remember this. I'm not sure if in your household kids were allowed to wear baseball bat, uh, caps with the bills backward. No, but uh, in some households, that is the fashion. In this household, that is the fashion. So this kid's wearing a baseball cap on backwards, and he's staring at his phone. His father is sitting on an armchair, and he's reading a newspaper. It's open in front of him, and the father is uh, reacting to something his kid said. And what his kid said was the following, quote, Dad, ever heard of the Wall Street Journal? Which is, uh, you know, that's the way newspaper work goes these days. It's a hard business. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, Evan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can uh, stay in the office this afternoon. I'll talk to you later. And Eric, 
ditto. Nice to have you around, Eric. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk to you soon. This is uh, Jim Grant for Current Yield, the Grant's Interest Rate Observer Podcast.